When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Big Think is an online forum for the world's most interesting thinkers and doers to share their ideas on video. Since 2008, we've shared over 10,000 of them. On the Think Again podcast, we surprise our guests and me, your host, with unexpected clips from these bottomless archives, and then we chat about them. Today I'm joined by Maria Konnikova, an author whose previous book, Mastermind, taught readers how to think like Sherlock Holmes, and author of The Confidence Game, coming up from Viking Press in January 2016. How's it going, Maria? Doing well. How are you, Jason? I'm great. So glad to have you on the show. I am sure that you're tired of answering Sherlock Holmes questions, but I'm going to ask you one anyway. If we could resurrect Sherlock Holmes and make him do this podcast, what do you think he would do? After you showed him any one segment, he would smoke a pipe and try to think about it, and he would basically take up a half an hour of your time for you to get one minute of recording. I am so glad to have you here today instead of Sherlock Holmes, Maria. So let's see what the producers have dug up for us. What's first, Aaron? This clip is from Kelly McGonigal, and she's talking about how stress can actually be good for you. One of the things that I've been most interested in lately is research on something called mindset. And mindset science says that the way that you think about something can actually transform the effect that it has on you. Um, Some of the most fascinating findings include how you think about aging. People who have a more positive attitude toward aging live on average eight years longer than people who have a more negative attitude towards aging and they preserve all the things that we think are good about youth and middle age. And some of this new research on mindset says that the way that you think about stress um, can actually help shape whether its effects are the toxic effects that we fear or whether we experience actually much more positive effects from stress. Things like uh, learning and growth and greater engagement with life and with our relationships. So one of the hormones that the body releases during stress is DHEA, which is a precursor to testosterone. It's literally strengthening. It helps the immune system. And its effect on the brain is to actually help make the brain more resilient to future stress. It increases neuroplasticity. And this is part of the normal stress response. And when you choose to view stress as an opportunity to learn and grow, your body and brain actually responds, releases more of DHEA, and actually puts you in a biological state that makes it more likely that you will learn and grow from that stressful experience. This is definitely something that um, is very close to what I write about and to what I've studied. Mindset, which is a term that was first coined, I believe, by Carol Dweck, there is so much data around the fact that how we think can actually affect our body physiologically. So I couldn't agree more um, with McGonagall's points. I think that it's really important to realize that a lot of our experience is constructed. So it's not just what we're experiencing in the moment, it's also how we're thinking about it. And we know that the mind-body connection is incredibly strong. And so you can 
influence your physiology through your psychology. This is the kind of advice that somebody who appears to have a very positive mindset will give to somebody who is in the depths of despair. And if you're in a place of psychological suffering and somebody comes along and tells you to think positively, that's bad advice. pretty hard to do, right? Yeah. So what do you do with that information, right? That's a really good question. And I think we actually have to put a big asterisk next to the power of mindset um, when say does not apply in clinical depression. This is perfect for the healthy psyche, but clinical depression is something, it's a different beast. Things like this do help if presented in the right way. It's part of cognitive behavioral therapy, is learning how to reconceptualize events. You know, my parents aren't divorced because of me. They're divorced because they were having issues. I have nothing to do with it, um, which is kind of like mindset, how you conceptualize stress. But a broad thing that says, oh, think happy thoughts, smile, that's about the worst thing you can do. That person will probably hate you and might even get more depressed. But cognitive behavioral therapy doesn't always work by right. itself. I mean, you need pharmaceuticals, often you need you know, long-term interventions, and there are some depressions that are resistant to all of this. So I think that mindset is incredibly powerful, but it only goes so far. You can think of it as like a placebo effect, right? Placebo effects in drugs are really strong, and they're wonderful, wonderful things. If it's working for you because you think it's working, that doesn't make it any less powerful. That's amazing. But no matter how wonderful your placebo effect is, if you have a really rare form of cancer that people aren't able to control, the placebo effect isn't going to cut it in that particular situation. Now, that one was kind of cheating because it was psychology, which is Maria's thing. We won't be so lucky next time. Right, Aaron? This is a clip from Lawrence Krauss on education and how current regulations could actually suppress creative thinking. Education is far less about a set of facts than learning how to critically think. And therefore, what I always think should be the basis of education is not answers but questions. We should teach kids how to question. Now, having said that, of course, to be a productive adult, there are certain skills that are required. Reading, writing, and in the old-fashioned days we used to say arithmetic, now we say mathematics. And, we, and it's important that we provide students those basic skills. And in that sense, I'm in favor of a common core. Because I think there are certain things that most reasonable educators and most reasonable mathematicians and scientists and historians would agree are part of what every modern literate person should have as a tool to go out and look at the outside world. One thing I cannot understand, and people are probably going to be upset about this, is why local school boards have control over educational content. Because local school boards are inevitably made up of individuals without any training. One of the reasons we send kids to school is to help protect them from their parents. <laughs> the reason kids are outside the house is so they get an exposure to things that might take them beyond the biases that they learn at home. So a common core is something I'm in favor of. What I'm not in favor of, by the way, is standardized tests, however. Testing always inevitably means you teach students to be able to do tests. And, and I've seen it at all levels. Just being able to regurgitate information is not what makes you a creative researcher. Being able to know specifics of, to pass a test is not the same as being able to understand how to go about answering those questions. Parents always think they know best for their children, right? Have you ever right. tried arguing with a parent? It's dangerous for your life. Yes. But the teachers have been 
training for this. So if you get a good teacher, the school environment can really supplement the home and in some cases can really counteract negative influences in the home. Right. I mean, we know that earlier schooling for people from low socioeconomic backgrounds, that can be life-changing. Lawrence Krauss was talking about just general education, but I think his point actually applies much more broadly. It protects against the good parents who want to be involved in everything, and it also protects against the parents who just don't have time and who ignore the kid or who abuse the kid because it is a separate environment that's specialized toward your child. And I think it goes to the broader question of what is the purpose of education, mm -hmm. which I think becomes more complex yeah. with every generation as the world becomes more complex? I do believe that the single most important thing that you can take with you throughout life is a critical approach to life and a curiosity that never stops. If you always are doing something for a reason, like if you're always, you know, you're only doing this homework assignment because you want an A or you want a cookie or you're only doing it for some reward, right. that's not an intrinsic reward, you're going to stop doing it the second that's gone. But the people who are really successful in life, not just in school, but the people who become, you know, great thinkers, artists, entrepreneurs, businessmen, lawyers, it doesn't really matter. Right. Um, although lawyers, you'd probably want to curb the creative thinking just a little bit. <laughs> Depending uh, maybe on what type right, of lawyer exactly. you are. I guess if you're a mafia lawyer, you have to be very <laughs> then creative. You, then you can be very creative. <laughs> but I think that the things that set those people apart are exactly what he said. It's not how well you did on a standardized test. Right. It's how engaged you are. That's why I love being a writer. I get to you know, ask people questions and play dumb. Yeah. And they teach me stuff. You know, I think schools are uniquely equipped to do this because they have so much access to the child. But what happens instead is that I think a lot of times they kill creativity. And I think the problem is the common core comes with standardized testing. So instead of a teacher being able to get kids interested, go in depth, you know, that you have to hit A, B, C, D, and E, right. that really changes the, the nature of the classroom. Talk about math, for instance. You are taught a very specific way to solve a math problem. I have known children who were punished even though they got the right answer because they did it wrong. Yeah. Well, sometimes the kid was actually much smarter than the teacher. Right. The way they did it was a million times better. I've read the Common Core, and they are about critical inquiry and encouraging questioning and so forth. And the way the tests are designed are creating certain structures that if the teachers aren't flexible enough right. or if the test graders aren't flexible enough not to rigidly adhere right. to, then it doesn't allow for that kind of flexible right. teaching and thinking. Right. So, and sometimes kids get punished just for asking questions, too. It's like, right. oh, we already covered this. Here you are disrupting the class again. You have ADHD. Things like this do happen. And kids then learn that, oh, I shouldn't be curious. I should just learn to do it the way they ask me to do it. And so ideally, I totally agree with Lawrence Krauss what the school can do. But I think we're really falling short of it oftentimes. Yeah, I think there's a good case to be made for the fact that schools on the whole, as hard as they are working, as great as many of the teachers yeah. are, are indeed killing creativity yeah. in a almost a factory system. It's hard. I mean, it's a, it's a hard problem. I don't pretend to know the answer. But then it keeps on happening. It, it happens at work. I imagine always that there is some ideal school where the kids are all day encouraged to put together robots. You know, I try to envision if this is not mm -hmm. ideal, what would be ideal? I think what people need to understand is that the best way to teach isn't this is the universal best way. It's this is best for this subject. For physics, 
let's build some robots. For chemistry, let's blow something up. For English, don't make a diorama. What in the world is that doing? And there's been really good work that shows that different ways of presenting is best for different types of information. So the Montessori approach is great at some ages and for some things. And likewise, a self-directed thing can be great for an independent study, but a child is a child. A child needs protection from himself as well. I realize that this is what parents have been saying for centuries, but a child doesn't know what he doesn't know. So I think that we need to strike a balance that's much more individualized. Of course, what I'm proposing will take more money and resources. You need a smaller student-to-teacher ratio. Yep. It's much easier always to standardize than it is to individualize. If it exists, it exists within the private school system, but yep. I fear that many of them are so focused on ticking off boxes to get kids into Harvard that they may not be doing it well either, it's many hard. of them. It's just hard. Yeah. Okay, well, Maria Konnikova and I have not succeeded in fixing the educational system, but there are some really good proposals on the table. So we're going to move on. What's next, Aaron? This is from Tavis Smiley on using the N-word and his long-running disagreement he had about this subject with Maya Angelou. Yeah, the N-word. The short answer is that uh, Maya could not stand the N-word and the context of its use did not matter to her. Her thing was very simply that if I have a vial with crossbones and skulls on it, it's poison. If I take that same poison and pour it into the most beautiful vase of Baccarat crystal ever made, it's still poison. Now, this is a generational thing because Maya was 30-some years older than I am, and my view of the N-word is a bit more nuanced, uh, again, based upon the generation that I've been raised in and the music that I listen to and the culture that I've been a part of. And so we had this debate for years about whether or not, you know, the N-word was something that, that ought to be used in any context. And we never agreed on that. The point of this is that she welcomed my opinion. She wanted to hear what I thought on a particular issue, even if she thought I was wrong. And no matter what the conversation was, no matter how tense or terse it might have been about a particular subject matter, every conversation always, always, always ended on a love note. She never allowed a conversation to end without it being on a love note. When I was 13, 12 years old, it was around the mid-80s, rap was just starting to come out. And we'd go to vacation in the summer, and I would put out a cardboard on the street and break dance. And in retrospect, knowing what I know about society and people, it seems totally crazy and ridiculous for a white boy from Bethesda to be in a rap costume backspinning, but there it was. What do you think about these issues of identity? I mean, especially mm -hmm. as it pertains to white people appropriating black culture. Yeah, I think it's a question that you and I cannot answer. I mean, I'm right. a white Jewish female. <laughs> right. Only the group that belongs to that identity can say, this is okay and this is not. It doesn't have to be race, it doesn't have to be religion, it's really anything. Right now, um, we're in a time where sexuality is something that people discuss and what are the correct pronouns to use right. when you refer to different people. Ask them <laughs> and then use whatever they say. I guess the question that I have is to what extent that's a good thing for little white kids in the suburbs to grow up listening to embracing and identifying with music that's coming from black culture. If they show up 
in the mall wearing a gold chain or something and trying to imitate their favorite rapper, well, that may well be criticized and possibly legitimately so. No, I, I see your point, yeah. but let me, you know, this is not a new question that came up because of rap. We've had this over and over and over. In every country, in our country, it happens to be black-white relations. Right. But music has often been that stomping ground. I mean, let's talk about jazz for a second, right. which was originally just black musicians. But then you have someone like Louis Armstrong, who listened to Big Spiderbeak, who was white, play the cornet, and said that this boy sure knows how to blow the corn. This is the best horn player I have ever heard in my right. entire life. Right. And a lot of black musicians felt that way. So I think that music is kind of a universal language. That's a cliche, but right. it's a cliche for a reason, because it can speak against cultural divides like that. And yet, let's go back to Louis and Bix. Bix could play in, in clubs that Louis couldn't play in. And there's the phenomenon of you're allowed to play there, but you can't sit in the audience. Right. And I feel like we've come a long way from that. We still have a long, long way to go. But I think music is meant to be heard and meant to be shared. It's a way of making people talk to one another who wouldn't otherwise, and it can erase certain prejudices because if your idols all happen to be black rappers, then you think black rappers are really cool and that kind of generalizes out. You know, there's still a question of, do you imitate it? How far do you go? If you're a little kid and you idolize someone, right. you're gonna do what little kids do, which is you're going to emulate them. So you're going to dress up like them and talk like them. That's what right. kids do. Children yeah. are little monkeys. Sure. Very cute little monkeys, <laughs> but, but that's how they learn. You know, they mimic a lot of the behaviors that they aspire to. And so the fact that you were breakdancing, I mean, it's a wonderfully innocent behavior because you're innocent of all the political context. You're saying, looking back, you're like, oh my God, how could I have done that? <laughs> right. That question doesn't even cross your mind because those are all things that we learn through socialization later on. We don't know it's not okay until we're told that's not okay. Right. And so if we lived in an ideal world where you're never told that's not okay because you say none of this matters. We are all just human beings. I mean, we are light years away from that happening and I'm not some idealist who says this is where we are right now. We're not. Right. But in that ideal world, like all of this, there, none of this would, would even be a question. So I think there's actually something to celebrate in that childhood innocence where you're able to do things like this in a very guileless way. You're not trying to make a statement. Right. You're not trying to do anything. You just think this person is cool, and so you want to act like this person. If you grow up with that, and you also learn to talk from the rap that you listen to, and again, you're a white kid from the suburbs, and you go to college or something, you might or might not get some negative feedback from sure. that, depending on where Absolutely, you are. Because at which point you're then going to have to like reconcile your own yeah. identity, and and that must be a difficult moment, I sure. would imagine, for someone Absolutely. trying to negotiate with a group that has influenced them so much, and some representative of that, of that group may now say, you know what, like well, that's enough why, with the with with. But talking you're not a kid way. anymore. Yeah, you're not play acting anymore. Now you have to be who you are. That's right, and that is why I no longer break dance in the streets on vacation. I don't know. Maybe you should take up. Maybe I should and... actually. Let me. I'm going on vacation in August. Maybe I'll bring my cardboard box. So Maria, could you do us the honors of pressing the generate quote button on the random quote generator and read the quote of the week to our audience? I would love to. All right. Those of us who believe in the right of any human being to belong to whatever church he sees fit and to worship God in his own way, 
cannot be accused of prejudice when we do not want to see public education connected with religious control of the schools, which are paid for by taxpayers' money. Eleanor Roosevelt. Talk about a wow. quote that, <laughs> that talks about everything that we've, that we've discussed. Eleanor, can you hear me? That, I mean, that's incredible, <laughs> right? Public education. Um, identity. Prejudice. Who, who can yeah, tell you what to believe and how to believe it. Yeah, that's so funny. Maria Konnikova, thank you so much for being with me today on Think Again. Is there anything that you want to tell folks out there about your next book? Um, thank you for asking, Jason. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's about con artists and how they work and why we believe them. So why we fall for them, why really, really smart people are not immune to this. And I think one of the things that I've learned is there's not a single person in the world who can't be conned. That's really interesting because I think that gets at some of the deepest parts of, of what makes human beings human. Absolutely. The, the, our capacity to believe and Absolutely. trust. Absolutely. And I, I think it's a really interesting thing that I've learned in writing this book is that the thing that makes us kind of who we are, that makes us human, is also the reason why we're so incredibly susceptible to con artists. And we always will be. I mean, the con man will be the last man standing. All right. Well, thank you, audience, for being with us this week. You can find us on bigthink.com forward slash think again or on Twitter at bigthinkagain. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.